The following sermon was delivered on June 13, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Ministerial assistant Zachary Groff delivered this sermon entitled The Lord Alone Provides on Ruth 1, 1-5. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit antiochpca.com or contact us at info at antiochpca.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. As we begin a new series this evening, I want to pose a question to each of you. What do you need? What do you need? Children, do you need books? Or maybe do you need toys? Or more time with your mom, with your dad, or with your best friends? Ladies, do you need more time, just in general, more energy, or more support and understanding from those around you to keep up with the busyness of day-to-day life. Men, do you need more money in your paycheck? Do you need more time at the gym or maybe in the garage or a more fulfilling job in general? What do you need? How would you answer that question? In our passage tonight, we are brought into a narrative of need, into a story of scarcity, into a historical account of hunger and famine, and how one family answers this question. What do you need? Even as a certain man named Elimelech in our passage tonight leaves his wife and two sons from their home in Bethlehem to the foreign fields and territory of Moab in search of food, the text ushers us into something much bigger. The search for a Redeemer. The search for a Redeemer. Tonight is the first phase of our quest. In this section of the book, we follow Elimelech, Naomi, and their two sons, Mahlon and Kilion, into heartbreaking tragedy. At the outset of our journey, we will see that though God's discipline may sting, yet man's willful schemes lead to death. Though God's discipline may sting, Man's willful schemes lead to death. First, we'll consider the expression of God's stinging discipline in the historical and spiritual setting of the book of Ruth, as introduced in verse 1. Then we will proceed to examine man's deadly scheme in verses 2 through 5. God's stinging discipline, then man's deadly scheme. So first, looking at God's stinging discipline in verse 1. What do you think of discipline? When I use that word, it's not a word that resonates with the American experience, is it? What do you think of discipline? doesn't sound pleasant, does it? Well, maybe another word. How about reprimand? That's much better, isn't it? Or reproof. Or consequences. These, These are not pleasant words in our vocabulary. Chastening, even. Do you like them? Probably not. But do you need these things in your life? Do you need discipline? Do you ever need reprimand or chastening or reproof? Of course. Of course. And the historical setting of Ruth expresses well this spiritual reality of our need for God's discipline, even when it stings. See, the narrative account of Ruth takes place in the historical setting of the judges. Look at the opening Uh, words of our verse. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed, or literally, when the judges judged. 
The law of the land in this period of Israel's history of, of how the people were supposed to live as God's children in the promised land is contained in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. However, we know from the book of Judges, and particularly from its theme verse, its summary verse, at the very end of Judges, that the people were in open and blatant rebellion against that law which God had delivered unto them through Moses. What does Judges 21-25 tell us? The familiar verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This closing verse is summary verse of the book of Judges. It suggests that Israel actually got to the point now where they needed a king. They needed a physical king for the people had rejected God as king and they were in open rebellion against his lordship. They were in open rebellion, think about this, against the Lord who delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. Their lives were marked by ingratitude and presumption and in willful schemes, if you read the book of Judges, leading again and again to death and destruction. According to Deuteronomy 32.24, there are consequences to this rebellion. And again, remember, the law in Deuteronomy is what governs the nation, even when they break it, in here in our context in the book of Ruth. When the people of Israel, God's old covenant community, rebelled against God and sinned against Him by breaking His laws under His covenant of grace, by doing what was right in their own eyes, Deuteronomy 32.24 tells us this, they would be wasted by famine. Along with plague and pestilence, conflict and confusion, famine was a curse resulting from the people's disobedience. Deuteronomy 28.15 says this, but it shall come about if you do not obey, literally, children, if you don't listen to the Lord your God, to observe to do all His commandments and His statutes with which I charge you today, that all these curses, including famine, will come upon you and overtake you. Ruth is set in this context. And what is it that leaps from the page in verse 1? There was a famine in the land. Why would this happen now? Why would God do this thing? Why would He bring famine? Or disease, war, and death to his people when they disobey him. The psalmist says that these acts of God are righteous judgments in Psalm 119.75. He says, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. But these aren't strictly or merely, rather, penal, legal judgments from the judge's bench. They're, they're not merely for punishment as we understand that in our modern uh, thinking This famine by which we are introduced to the family of Elimelech and Naomi is one of God's instruments of discipline. It's an expression of God's loving care and concern for his people that he isn't abandoning them to themselves. As such, as an expression of his gracious and loving discipline, this famine is nothing less than a proof of God's love for the children of Israel. What does Proverbs 3.12 say? For whom the Lord loves, He reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom He delights. 
And what does Christ say to the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3.19, if you remember last week? Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. In this famine, in Ruth 1.1, I can't emphasize this enough, God was graciously judging the people. He was faithfully reproving them as their Lord and their God, as their tender, loving Father. And He was chastening the people. He was graciously disciplining them. But Zach, this was a famine, man. This was severe. This was not a little thing like like a spanking or taking away a toy for a few days or telling you you have to stop reading your book and turn out the lights or getting a speeding ticket or even getting thrown in jail for a couple of months. No, this was something that could lead to rationing, to starvation, and even to death or cannibalism or something else completely unpleasant. Now, it's difficult for us to imagine what life during a famine is like. None of us are subsistence farmers working the land to provide food for our families. Unless uh, one of you is much older than you look, I don't think any of you lived through the Dust Bowl in Oklahoma or walked the, uh, walked the pathway to a Hoover town in California or anything like that. Rather, we, all of us, are living in the wealthiest nation in the world during the time of humanity's greatest economic prosperity and technological advancement. We don't know what it's like to live through a famine. We might be able to say we know what it's like to live through a pandemic, but that pales in comparison. However, God tells us what famine is like in ways, surprisingly, that we can really relate to. Leviticus 26.20 says this. This is what life will be like in a famine. Your strength will be spent uselessly, for your land will not yield its produce, and the trees of the land will not yield their fruit. See, God's discipline here is um, a turning up the volume. It's an amplification of the curse laid upon Adam in Genesis 3, that he would have to work strenuously and, and, and sweat and exhaust his energies in order simply to provide for his, for his family and for himself, simply to bring bread out of the ground. And Leviticus 26 tells us your strength will be spent uselessly. Even that work, it would be amplified and you won't even get anything out of the ground. A few verses later in Leviticus 26, verse 26, God details the effect of famine. He says, when I break your staff of bread, ten women will bake your bread in one oven and they will bring back your bread in rationed amounts so that you will eat and not be satisfied. Can you sympathize with that experience. This is what life during a famine is like. Useless, unproductive labor on one hand. You know how frustrating that can be. You do a job and you don't get paid for it, for example. Limited food and unsatisfying meals. You don't have enough to put on the table just to fill your bellies. Parents, when you feed your children and you're really in need and you know you didn't give them enough, and they say, Mommy, Daddy, is there any more? I'm still hungry. And they're not just whining, they're actually serious. That's what life in a famine is like. You can imagine the distress, the heartbreak, the despair that this would bring about. In short, as the heading of, um, as our first heading would suggest, God's discipline stung. It hurt. And it still stings today. You see, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and He still disciplines His people. But how so? 
We don't live under, we don't live in the land. We don't live under that economy, as it were, that administration of the covenant of grace. Our experience is different as we live it out than the experience of the old covenant people of God, but we still have famine. How so? Well, observe, just look around you. Um, not in this room per se, but look around us. Observe the spiritual famine of the church in our day. Consider how weak so many churches are. We are blessed, abundantly blessed in Greenville with churches that preach the word. But as one who comes from another place entirely than Greenville, South Carolina, I will tell you, there is no place like Greenville around the world. Most places are starving for faithful gospel ministers, even in Reformed churches. We claim the name of Christ, who is victorious over sin and death and the devil, in our national courts, in our presbyteries, in our local congregations, and yet, when you look around at the church today, we limp along, wounded by petty personal conflict, by political distress even, by financial need, and by theological error. These things make pastors, elders, deacons, and church members alike very frustrated. Church ministry frequently seems so unproductive. We labor and labor, and very little is ever yielded from the time and energy expended, and we're given very unsatisfying results. And each year, according to some reports, churches close in this country alone by the hundreds. Look at the damage wrought by this pandemic last year. How many churches shut down permanently as a result of the, the pressures from the COVID-19 pandemic? Why? Why does this happen? Might this be the Lord's faithful discipline of us? I'm not saying any of those churches in particular got what they deserved, though certainly that was the case, but other churches that seem much worse off and much more inclined toward error seem to be booming better than ever. But why would this have happened? The Lord's disciplining His church. He knows what is best for us, and He disciplines us through these situations, teaching us to turn to Him in our need, to depend upon Him for fruitfulness in church ministry. That's why, practically speaking, the ministry of this church is organized around two, uh, two poles, as it were. Public worship and prayer. I love how Dr. Piper introduced this, uh, this new kingdom prayer meeting on Sunday afternoons leading up to this service. I think that really needs to be our emphasis because nothing, nothing declares and confesses our need for God than prayer for the ministry of the church as well as for our personal needs. Now, bringing this home, speaking of personal experience, what about our day-to-day -day lives in, in our homes? Where do we experience spiritual famine there? Has your faith ever been shaken? Has your assurance of God's love for you ever been disturbed? Has Bible reading or family devotions or worship, even here at church, seemed to you personally dry, boring, or confusing? The Westminster Confession of Faith talks about these experiences. It tells us that true believers may have the assurance of their salvation diverse ways shaken, diminished, and intermitted, interrupted. 
Why does this happen? Why is it that we go through spiritual famines and droughts even in our personal lives? Doesn't God love us? Well, the confession lists a number of individual causes for these kinds of experiences. Negligence in preserving of our assurance of salvation. We forget, we ignore, we don't meditate on the goodness of God. Falling into some special sin which woundeth the conscience and grieveth the spirit. Some sudden or vehement temptation. You see, when you neglect to cultivate a warm-hearted and sincere devotion to the Lord, when you sin against God in thought, word, or in deed, when you depart from God's gracious government in your life in any way, then famine comes. He disciplines you. Why? Because your Father in heaven loves you. He's reminding you of that. He prizes your life. He sees you and He brings you discipline for His glory and your good. The most unpleasant experiences in your life, the loss of children, the, the, the dissolution of marriages, the persisting life-dominating sins which torment your soul, God ordains all of these things for your good. Easier to say than to live out. Children, do you enjoy having your toys taken away? If your parents do that, do you like that? They take away a remote control car or a Lego set or, or some other toy? Of course not. Do you like getting spanked when you disobey your parents and they bring the rod to bear? No. No one likes that. Your parents don't like that. Such discipline stings, and sometimes quite literally. None of us relish reprimand. I think we made that point earlier. And be honest with yourself. Are you, are you always ready to listen to your conscience when it accuses you of sin? My friends, the God who made you and gave you a conscience gave it to you for this exact purpose. To draw you to Himself in repentance. To bless you with His mercy. The mercy He alone provides. What is the natural response to discipline? We see it illustrated in our text today, and we'll get there, but I want to pose a question now. Do you welcome it, or, or do you try to tr run away and turn away from it? Deuteronomy 30 tells us what would happen if you welcome the discipline from God. It tells us that if the people of Israel would respond to God's discipline by repenting from their sins and returning to Him in wholehearted obedience, then God would restore them into right relationship with Him. That, they would, that He would restore them and have compassion on them and would gather them once again to Himself. What a glorious picture of His love. Brothers and sisters, do not scorn the discipline of the Lord. When difficulties abound and there's no shortage of pain, deprivation in your life, when God seems far off, and troubles seem so near at hand. Recognize the Lord's chastening hand and cry out to Him for help, for instruction in righteousness, for salvation in Christ Jesus, the Redeemer. I do want to put a qualification in at this point, and Dr. Piper will be getting into this in his fall series, or his series which he'll start in the fall and will most certainly progress beyond the fall. He'll be going, taking us through Job, and Job's friends made the error of trying to point out specific one-to-one -one points between what Job was suffering and why he was suffering. And they made up all kinds of crazy accusations against him. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that because you do X, Y, and Z, thus 
everything you suffer is a direct consequence of that. What I am saying, though, is whatever happens in your life, seemingly for good or for ill, is designed by God to discipline you, to make you more like Christ, to make you more holy. And it's a dangerous prayer to pray for holiness because frequently God makes us holy through suffering. But He's still making us holy. To follow in the more well-worn path of human willfulness, to disregard God's discipline. Now that's treacherous, as we see. And the end of verse 1 tells us that this was the course which was followed by a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah. He went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. Dr. Piper hinted at this. Bethlehem literally translates into the house of bread in Hebrew. So get it. He was hungry because of a famine. So he leaves the house of bread. And the land of Moab really, it's an interesting construction here, is literally the field or pasture land of Moab. So this man leaves the house where, where people enjoy bread, and he goes into the field like an animal in search of food in a pasture land. This man leaves the house of bread, and not only that, but he takes his wife and his two sons into the field of a pagan nation, and he distances himself and his family from God and God's provision, taking his boys out from the shelter of the Most High God, and for what purpose? He takes it upon himself to find bread on his own. That's how desperate this famine was, and that is how faithless and willful this man was. Rather than repent unto God in response to God's righteous discipline, Elimelech would not have been an ignorant man. No, his parents named him my God is king. So supposedly, he's from faithful stock. But this man who knows better flees from God in a spirit of self-sufficiency, self-reliance. I'm going to fix this. And when have you done the same? When have you, rather than turning unto God for aid, have just pressed on in your own direction? And how did that work out for you? Did you find relief somewhere else? Let us press on to verses 2-5. through five. We need to find out what happened to this man from Bethlehem as he pursued man's deadly scheme of turning away from God and going after his own designs. Verse 2 gives us some basic details about the family. The man's name is Elimelech, which ironically perhaps, again, as I said, means my God is king. His wife's name is Naomi. That means pleasantness. And they have two sons, Mathlon and Kilion, which means something like starvation and scarcity. So you see what was on their minds when these boys came into the world. And we're told that this is a family of Ephrathites. That means from the Bethlehem that Jesus ends up coming from. From the Bethlehem that David ends up calling his hometown. There's nothing particularly remarkable about this family. At least we're not told anything particularly remarkable about them in these opening verses Rather, we might say that they're kind of a normal Judean family. The run of the mill. Um, you know, in medieval Europe, a friend of mine who was in theater told me this, they had these morality plays in the public squares. And most of them, if not, yeah, I think most of them, would have a character named, literally named, because Europeans were very nuanced in the Middle Ages, literally named every man. And it was supposed to be a character that everyone could relate to. He was your normal guy, your average person. And it's certainly easier for us to relate to a character in a story or in a historical account 
who uh, has something in common with us. And this Elimelech, he's a normal guy with a normal family, with a normal response to desperate times. They're very relatable for the people of ancient Israel, and they should be very relatable to us because of what they do. They entered the land of Moab and remained there. They went on the hunt for provisions. They went looking for food. They got hungry and sought to satisfy it. But this family under Elimelech's leadership, the point that the text is making for us is that this family follows a scheme to find food during a famine, really ultimately to escape God's discipline. And that's where the fault comes in. They were hungry, they were desperate, and they were willing to abandon the promises of God in order to satisfy their physical hunger. You and I can relate to them because we know what it's like to be desperate for something that God has withheld from us for some reason. We might not have lived through a famine, but certainly there have been times when we've coveted in our hearts that thing that our neighbor has or that thing we saw on TV. And we know that to go get that thing means that we can't put as much in the offering plate. Or to go get that thing means that we can't save up for our children's education or whatever it is, thing that we know we're going to have to abandon our responsibilities, abandon our trust in God to pursue after that thing, whatever it is, that thing we think we need. This is the breakdown of every instance of our sin, be it in thought, word, or deed. We think we need something. We think we need to do something. Even our sinful desires are inflamed after something forbidden to us. And we turn away from God and His arrangements in our lives to pursue after that thing. And what's the result of this scheme? Look at verses 3-5 through with me. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left, literally left behind with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Mahlon and Kilion also died and the woman was bereft, or again, left behind of her two children and her husband. What stands out to you about these verses? There's, there are three things in particular that really should hit home and that I want to highlight. First, there's literal death. There is so much literal death. Elimelech dies. Later, Mathlon and Kilion die. Naomi is left behind. She's left empty, bereft of both her husband and her sons. She's widowed, which, if you're familiar with the historical setting, is a precarious situation. She would have been in nothing but need, without a penny to her name, as it were. We find out later that she is extremely, uniquely industrious and wise, but she would have been left in a precarious situation by her husband's faithlessness, both economically and socially. And this is not the only way in which the family is shattered by Elimelech's desperate scheme. You see, the second way is even before Mathlon and Kilion pass away, we're told that they take up to themselves uh, Moabite women as wives. They abandon their identity as Israelites. Now, it's interesting. It was not against uh, the Torah. It was not against the law for, the, for Israelite men to take Moabite women as wives. However, those Moabite women would have had to basically convert to Judaism, become Israelites, 
for that to be permitted, for that to be allowed. But the language here is, is one of urgency, that these, these men, they, they take up, they almost like seize and grab these women as wives. It's not that they're seeking to be faithful Israelites, it's that they're seeking to put down some roots into the land of Moab. And they spend their last ten years in this land, childless, supposedly. And in so doing, they really consorted with an enemy of Israel. Numbers 22 to 25 describes the animosity that Moabites harbored against the Israelites during the Exodus when the Israelites were coming up out of Egypt, fleeing from slavery. The Moabites don't help them. The Israelites posed no real threat to them. They just wanted to pass through, and the Moabites went to war against them. And one of the ways that the men of Israel in, the, in those chapters, and especially in Numbers 25, angered the Lord and fell into temptation was by engaging in idolatry with the daughters of Moab. We understand Mahlon and Kilion here to be forsaking their identity with the God of Israel, taking their father's move one step further in their act of taking to themselves wives from Moab. Whenever our inward affection or our outward commitment, those things that are most at play when we enter into a marriage in, um, in particular, Whenever these things run counter to the honor of God, we begin to identify with something other than the one true provider of what we really need. What could be more disastrous to a Christian soul than to marry someone who doesn't love the Lord Jesus Christ? Parents, you must, you must, I plead with you, press this urgent truth upon your children's hearts. Even now, while our children are young, press this truth upon them. They must marry in the Lord. Don't misapply the doctrine. Don't forbid them from marrying someone on the basis of race or social standing or even family background. There is one condition that is ultimate. They must love the Lord God. And we need to pray even now with them and for them that the Lord would guide them into God-honoring marriages in due time. This is an urgent need. Third, so we've seen how there's literal death. There is a forsaking of identity. So a, a death of their identity with God. And then verse 5 marks the death not only of Elimelech's sons, but of his heritage of his inheritance, of his name. His line comes to an end here in the opening clause of verse 5. As students of history, you could highlight this verse as the end of Elimelech. Both Mahlon and Kilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Here it would seem Elimelech's name dissolves into nothing. Men, do you ever think about your legacy? Do you ever think about what you're going to leave behind as a man of God? Do you ever think about what generational good that you're bringing into the world even now or setting up even now? What if your entire life was spent in chasing after the fulfillment of your immediate needs, the gratification of your flesh, and you left nothing behind that speaks of God's grace and goodness and covenant faithfulness? How shameful would that be? God calls you to so much more, and not just to men, but to each one of us, men and women, even children, you can think about, you know, what do I need to do to prepare to be fruitful for the Lord for a lifetime? 
I'm not necessarily referring to the rearing of boys who bear your name. God gives us many different ways to pursue lasting generational good in His creation. You know, I, I don't know of any physical descendants of the Apostle Paul, do you? But we're all heirs and benefactors of his miraculous missionary uh, journeys and efforts. Um, St. Augustine, his only son, Adiodatus, died in adolescence. I don't know any descendants of Augustine. And yet, he's a father of the faith. John Calvin, his children died after him. We don't know of any descendants of John Calvin, and yet how significant has he been? And Samuel Rutherford had no sons to carry forward his name. And yet, all of these men, for me personally, and for many of us in the room, are heroes in the faith, have left a generational blessing in the world and in the church. You know, I know of very few Christian ministers in history who have had an immense influence on my ministry and on, on my thinking anyway, who also had a huge family tree. There are certainly some, but I don't know of many. Nevertheless, in the death of Elimelech's sons, we're given a physical picture of a spiritual reality that man's willful schemes lead to death in several dimensions. Literal death, identity death, and family death. In these opening verses of Ruth, they complete the picture for us. So for you men and for you heads of households in particular, do not soon forget this picture. See, Elimelech did not die alone. His willful scheming in direct contradiction to the revealed will of God led to tragedy and disaster for his entire family, didn't it? Naomi was left on her own. Do you feel the weight of that? Supposed to. That's one of the aims of this text, is establishing the need for a Redeemer who will be revealed in the next chapter. Now perhaps you're even now sitting here contemplating the gravity of this situation. Perhaps like Elimelech, you're suffering the fallout of some sin in your own life or in the culture and society around you. And you might be tempted to roll up your sleeves and then get to work in solving whatever issue you're facing on your own. But that's not what we're supposed to do. Stop. Consider this. God's Word is sufficient. He gives you the blueprint for how to proceed. His grace is sufficient to chart a course through His discipline, even for your good. Now, what do I mean by that? In Psalm uh, 32, verses 3-7, to we're given a map. The frequently used psalm of confession. We use it in our prayer meeting on Wednesday nights. We use it in the service here. And this, this passage uh, at verse 3 starts with a description of spiritual starvation, of spiritual famine that leads to confession of sin. Verse 3, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. The description of a famine, literally. And then he continues uh, with the wise course of action. And it's not fleeing the problem like a limelech, but rather facing it head on with that prized pearl of the Christian life. Prayerful confession of sin. As I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide, I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of 
deliverance. Oh God, give me a clean conscience before you. I can face anyone or anything, whatever comes my way, whatever difficulty, with a clean conscience, I can bear up by your Spirit. In other words, he says, the forgiveness, the grace, the mercy of God, the Lord alone provides all that you or I need. He surrounds you with songs of deliverance. So I repeat the question with which I began this evening. What do you need? What do you need? Elimelech thought he needed physical bread. And his willful scheme led him to do what? To sacrifice his future in the promised land, his sons, his family, his name, his very life for some temporal satisfaction. For a false promise of bread to escape God's judgment upon rebellious Israel. And though God's discipline may sting, yet man's willful schemes lead to death. I think that is clear. But isn't it ironic that Elimelech left a place called the house of bread in order to chase after food in a field, in a pasture land like some animal, as I said earlier. Elimelech thought that he needed physical bread, and he found death in Moab. However, through Elimelech's folly in fleeing from Bethlehem and Naomi's wisdom in returning to Bethlehem, as we'll see, God will bring forth a king for Israel who will uphold his law, a man after his own heart, King David, to defend God's people. And then at the end of the story, Ruth bears a son to Elimelech's relative Boaz, her second husband. And in Ruth 4.17, we read this glorious celebratory verse. The neighbor women gave him a name, this son, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. This woman who's been emptied and left bereft of her sons and her husband, she's been given a son. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Though Elimelech left Naomi empty at the beginning of the account, yet God blessed her with the joy of life and progeny here at the end of the story. Like Elimelech and Naomi and their family, you and I need something far more nourishing than physical bread. We need God and His righteousness. We need Him who calls Himself the bread of life in John 6. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself came into the world through the very same Bethlehem in our passage, the house of bread. And by His words, the Spirit moves us to work not for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. Christ, the Son of God, promises, I am the bread of life. He who comes to Me will not hunger. And he who believes in Me will never thirst. He, unique among all men, far surpassing any counselor or advisor or self-help guru or whatever, can make that promise. He can bear the weight of your need, of your hunger, of your thirst. So to whom will you turn? To depend upon yourself will lead to further frustration, dissatisfaction, spiritual depression, and, and ultimately death apart from God. That's what our passage shows us. But to turn to Christ, to come to Him, will bring you into life-giving presence of God the Father, to everlasting life in His presence. To call upon Christ, the bread of life, casting off all stubborn self-reliance, self-sufficiency, will result in the blessing of His Spirit making a home in you, indwelling you. There's no satisfaction apart from Christ. There's no spiritual fruitfulness 
in the church or in our personal lives, apart from His life-giving Spirit, we so desperately need this gift from His hand. And there's no hope apart from the Father's good purposes in our lives. I'll say it again, as I said it before. There's no hope for us apart from the discipline of God. We need His discipline even when it stings. For this discipline is God's call for us to repent, to follow earnestly after Christ Jesus our Lord in the way of life. Your natural fleshly desire, like Elimelech, will be to follow after your own schemes, to, uh, to chase after what you think is the right course of action when life gets difficult, but we must listen to God's Word and submit our wills to Him. You need to listen to your conscience as it echoes God's Word. Forsake your way. Throw out your deadly schemes. Cast off your self-reliance and embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to you in the Gospel. Hold fast to His confession. Obey His Word. Trust in Him. Don't scorn His discipline. Friends, I plead with you, please hold the eventual officers of this church accountable to do the very same thing in how the ministry of this church is pursued. Whether I'm one of those officers or not, but if I do become one of those officers, I invite you to hold me accountable. And certainly, each of us need to be doing that even now with our provisional session. Heed the warning presented by the life of Elimelech, lest you die separated from the love of God. Do not depend on your own wiles, your own schemes. Rather, appeal to the Father for forgiveness through the Son, and He will send His Spirit to provide for you all that you need for spiritual contentment and rest. He alone can do it. He alone will do it. The Lord provides for His love endures forever. His faithfulness from generation to generation. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.